This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to His Darker Materials. This is the podcast where we recap and talk about His Dark Materials, the BBC HBO adaptation of the Philip Pullman book series. I'm Dave Corkery and I'm here with my co-host Helen O'Hara. Hello, Helen. Hello. And if it's your first time here, well, that's weird because this is the last episode. But hey, welcome. There are spoilers, obviously, for all of the show. And now I think all of the the books, well, the original books, we won't do the the Book of Dust and all that. Uh, So it's just spoilers for everything. We've done it. We're at the end. Uh, So consider yourself spoiled. Um, And then we made it, gang. We are going to chat about uh, episode eight in just a moment. But just to let you know. Helen also got to speak to Russell Dodgson, uh, the VFX supervisor and exec producer on the show. So that chat uh, will be coming up later on. So Helen, what? Uh, would, where, how do you feel? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'll be honest. I've, I've now rehydrated after <laughs> watching this last episode, but it was touch and go for a minute there. I was uh, sobbing my eyes out, quite frankly, uh, as I was every time I finished the books. So. I guess that's uh, the, the sign of an adaptation well done. I thought I was good, right? Because they were they were they had a lot of goodbyes, and I was watching it, and I and I was like watching it with sort of clinical, uh, analytical eyes, and I was like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And then with the and I was like, this isn't really impacting me too much. And then will then they had that last kiss, and then will closed the the ziploc bag. That is the door, uh, and 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 what? that's that's when I lost it. Uh, I don't really just yeah that that final moment just got me, and I yeah, I was in puddles. It was it, that was pretty devastating to be perfectly honest. That was that was really um, as it is in the book. This idea that these these kids have been through so much, they have found something in each other that keeps them going and has enabled them to literally fight heaven. And then, and then they have to say goodbye and never see each other again. It's like, so oh. cruel. I don't think I, I, I held a grudge against Philip Pullman for a long time for, for that. <laughs> so did I. But it is a brilliant ending because it is very powerful and moving. And I got to say hats off to the show because I thought they brought it to um, life in a really nice, touching and, and, and fitting way. It felt very respectful of that that core idea, and if anything, they they sort of made it more heartbreaking. They kind of reveled in it a little bit. <laughs> Those bastards! <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's it's the fact that they had the whole episode really just for Will and Lyra. I mean, we've lost we've lost uh, Lord Azrael and Mrs. Coulter, those, you know, screen gobbling bastards. Uh, <laughs> I say this with love and affection. And and you know, it is now it does all come down to Will and Lyra and to a lesser extent they're they're demons as well. You know, Mary's there, but she's very much there in support of them. She's very much there, you know, just to chat to them and sort of not quite set them up but a little bit also set them up, you know, so. Yeah, so- I, I really like that idea that, uh, and the angel kind of explains it to her later, you know, her role, the significance of her role was, you know, as Mary says, it was, is it, was it, is that all it was? You know, she just had to tell a story. And I like that they picked up on that motif of stories. And it's what that um, Malefa says to Mary when we say goodbye, keep telling stories and tell the story, Mary. And we had Lyra in the the land of the dead, you know, it's telling stories was was powerful because that's how you um that's how you influence others. And it that gave Will and Lyra the courage to sort of acknowledge their feelings for each other and to and to act on them. Yeah, it's how you connect with other people as well, isn't it? It's t- you know, you connect with people by telling them about yourself and by being honest about how you feel, right? And that's what Will and Lyra in a absolutely 100% typical teenage way you know any of us would have been the same or worse haven't they have not been doing they've been holding back from each other just a little bit and and that's what sort of ends this episode they, like it all comes tumbling out pretty much and you know they essentially admit that they're in love with each other and that is 
seismic. And I think a lot of people asked when the book came out and have been kind of talking about it ever since, like, how is Mary Malone the serpent, quote unquote? And it's it's just in that. It's just in saying that love is important, I think. And maybe also, yes, you know, explaining to an extent what dust is, you know, how that, that whole consciousness works, why it's important, why they have to protect it and maintain it. I guess if you're talking about the serpent in the kind of Adam and Eve sense, having been you know, awareness, having been self-awareness or sentience, then she kind of does do the same job a little bit. Um, it's just seeing it through a different prism. It's not seeing it as she introduces them to sin or badness or something wrong. She just introduces them to the world as it is and, and you know, the things that matter, being able to think, being able to talk to people, being able to connect with people, um, being able to explore and be curious. Exactly right. The actions of her in this moment are very like the serpent from Adam and Eve. It's just all about perspective, isn't it? Because she is opening their minds up to the possibility of desire and, and, and giving them permission. She's telling them through her story that it's okay to feel those butterflies in your stomach and those temptation and, and desire. That's the word that gets used here in this episode a lot. Like And desire, you know, Balthamos says it when he confronts Father Gomez, desire is not Sin, love takes a million forms, each of them beautiful, each of them worthy. I thought that was lovely. And that's and and that's really what the serpent is doing. It's saying, you know, it's okay to desire. You know, desire is not is isn't bad. It's a sin. It's you know, it's a it's a it's a part of life. And uh I, I this it's, it's so beautifully kind of simple and it's fundamental to kind of what Philip Pullman is trying to say, isn't it? And and the other idea I like is this idea of experience versus innocence. And you know they 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 visualize that through the dust and the you know they don't have as much dust in them as Mary, and Mary is able to share her experience with them through storytelling, and then that re results in them you know being more dusty, and that another and that's kind of you know that's how that's how life works and it's kind of beautiful as opposed to Gomez and the Magisterium who are repressing you know and they're they're restricting and they're you know they're shutting things down they they want to remove that i mean thank god dust isn't visible can you imagine if you know you came back from your first snog at, at the school formal <laughs> yeah. and your parents were like oh somebody's been snogging let me get out that uh, spyglass young lady <laughs> it's all made very explicit as well isn't it in the scene with balthamos and father gomez where um you know Father Gomez has Mary in his sights. He's about to fire and Balthamos stops him and says, desire is not sin. Love takes a million forms, each beautiful, each worthy. So, you know, it could not be more clear that this is, that the church has been wrong, that the magisterium has been wrong, that sex or experience or consciousness or whatever you want to call it, uh, none of this is, is, is bad. How do you think Gomez felt on the way out. I mean, honestly, I don't care to heck with that. <laughs> I know, he's such a dick. I mean, just the worst, absolute worst. And, and it's to this new beautiful paradise and he's just like, what can I shoot? <laughs> I, shoot right, shoot I mean, you know, if you had any doubts, the fact that he came through that doorway and immediately shot something, that, that should put them to rest. You know, he's, he's not a nice man. And in fact, even in death, you know, uh, Balthamos crushes his demon and basically dies I, I don't know if it's it's a stinging spider or something, but just like the the effort of it just crushes him. I had I had to look that up because I thought it wasn't quite clear to me, but I think I think that is what happens. It, it like it's poisonous or something, or it yeah it it fought back or. But I th yeah I wasn't quite sure. I thought Beltamos had just was done. He's <laughs> like I'm out. I think there's a, there's an element <laughs> yeah, yeah. of that as well that, that he died with Barouche's name on his lips, just as Barouche did a couple of episodes ago. It's just it's a it's a tragic parallel, one of many this this episode. So will we talk a bit about um, how Lyran will get to this stage? They're kind of looking for their demons and then they're kind of, I, I like it when we first meet them, they're, you know, they're, they're going swimming. There's a lot of swimming in this episode, a lot of, uh, a lot of splashing swimming, about, yeah. but it's nice. They're kind of like, I think Daphne Keane and Amir Wilson are, there's a playfulness that they're allowed to bring to their characters again. And they're joking with each other and they're splashing each other around. It's just kind of nice to, to spend an episode with them kind of just enjoying life and enjoying each other a bit after a lot of misery this season in particular. <laughs> after a lot of <laughs> yeah. misery. And I think it's it's interesting that both of them, like they weren't trying to take down heaven. You know, they weren't trying to change the order of worlds and universes. 
they had two very specific missions, well, to the extent that they did at all. Um, Lyra was looking for Roger both times. She went looking for Roger, and then when he died, she went looking for Roger again to say sorry. And Will wanted to find his dad, you know, after that first mad rush away. That's what he was looking for. So both of them have had closure in the Land of the Dead on those missions, right? That's that's all they set out to do. So at this point, as they, as far as they know, their work is kind of done. They kind of are on holiday, and you have that moment, you know, in the in the first sort of swimming scene where Lyra is like, I, I feel like Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel are dead. I think they're dead, and I'm okay with that. But you know, I'm not like super happy about it. I'm not super sad. I'm okay with it. But so there's some kind of sense of closure in that respect. But but mostly these two have done their mission, and all they have to do now is is mop up the pieces, i.e., find the demons again, and and kind of go on with their lives. Of course, in this episode, they get the very unwelcome news that it won't be quite that easy, and they won't just be able to find a world, pick a world, and then you know set up shop together. It's just so cruel, isn't it? And and, oh, and, it's and you feel, I think awful. you really feel it from their perspective. You know, they're trying to find a way. There's got to be a way. Use some of your witchcraft seraphina and you know, and it, it, it you know there's they're just getting plot blocked at, at every at every mm-hmm. possible angle you know even the alethiometer breaks i thought that was interesting you know and it, it, it's this transition into adulthood their demons settle you know finally pan becomes a, a pine martin which she was happy about which is, was nice uh will's demon uh gets a name kiryava uh given by uh seraphina seraphina always seems to show up whenever she's needed yeah she she's a little bit you know little miss exposition at times God <laughs> yeah, bless her. um and you know no disrespect she's still cooler than either of us will ever be but she is a little bit basil exposition um at times and and certainly here i did have a couple of questions about the witches so they can't travel between worlds anymore either can they i was going to ask you that as well because because the, they <sighs> had that power right and so it's sure yeah. that's something that could then be taught or they their power comes from within those sort of uh twigs that they are in there uh i mean look <laughs> it's probably no point in us picking plot holes apart i'm sure i'm sure there's a there's a uh there's another plot barrier as to why that doesn't work or why it can only work i'm sure there is i'm sure somebody has written a dissertation on it already <laughs> yeah. we should have read it frankly uh, before starting this podcast it's interesting you know they're all assuming the witches can't assuming that all the doors are really closed and this is a serious drawing of the line because presumably if the witches could Lyra still could, right? Because Lyra now has sort of witchy powers. You know, she's done. She's undergone the same kind of trial uh, of fire, if you like, that they go through in, in, in learning to separate from their demons. So I think we have to presume that they can't either. So everyone's losing a lot. Like Mary Malone has just found just, you know, absolute academic heaven with the Malefa. She is just a pig in, you know, pigs will you know spending time studying these people learning from them being part of this quite frankly idyllic you know society that's totally imbalanced with nature and just you know rolls around on wheels all day having a nice time and she has to go back to her normal world and can't talk about any of this by the way because they would laugh her out of town yeah she's got to go back to lecturing and write great grading papers and uh... <laughs> yeah i guess the witches can't travel either. I guess the angels still can because they are made of essentially dust themselves. Yeah, they're, kind of they're made everywhere, of everywhere, right? Yeah. But, you know, otherwise everyone else is is giving something up to give consciousness, to give life, to give purpose in the universe a chance and that's quite a powerful thing to end on it's not sort of all the ewoks dancing around the fire you know it's very much everybody everybody has given up a huge part of their own happiness to make a better world for the rest of us yeah it is an enormous sacrifice and i think it's it's felt by um lyra and will and by the by the viewers as can as is evidenced by the all the tissues around uh <laughs> around i mean it was, yeah, it's it's absolutely devastating, quite frankly. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome back to the show Russell Dodgson, who's the senior visual effects supervisor on His Dark Materials and has basically been the man in charge of demons uh, since the year dot, I think, at this point. <laughs> Please do tread carefully if you haven't finished the season yet. 
there are some spoilers here up to episode 8. But otherwise, if you want to know more about demons, about angels, and even about harpies, please enjoy Russell Dodgson. Well, I'm delighted to be joined again by Russell Dodgson. How are you doing? How are things? I'm doing okay. I am now at the end of a four to five year His Dark Material saga, adapting to a life without it slightly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, like the, the last time we spoke, I think you were you were facing the challenge of the Malefa, and and I think we should talk about them first and foremost because I feel like uh, that was the thing that I think probably gave you the most sleepless nights. Perhaps I'm wrong. We can talk about that. And I noticed also that you directed some of those scenes. So clearly, you know, you played a very big part in getting them on screen. So so tell us, how did it come together? It sort of was and wasn't the headache I was expecting in sort of, in sort of different measure. I think I always thought the headache was going to be more visual um, and it actually turned out to kind of be less visual and more just conceptual in the end. You know, the way that they're described in the book we sort of realised quite quickly that if you follow exactly how they're described in the book, i.e. they've got some kind of diamond-like structure, at the same time you're trying to create a character that is kind of beautiful and elegant and kind of represent nature and symbiosis. And yeah, I mean, like those two things don't go hand in hand. And we just realised quite quickly that we just sort of had to let go of like one line in a book that could really mess you up visually for a long period of time. So what we did is we tried to kind of distill the essence of what they are and what they mean to the story. Um, and this is this is still talking about the visual sort of side of things. And, you know, I think so Joel Collins, our production designer, he designed the the overall sort of initial kind of concept of them. And he, he actually referenced this old prehistoric creature called a calicathere, which is where we get the proportions from. We actually did sort of this real deep dive with um, this amazing scientist called Stuart Samida in the, in the US, who we occasionally go to when we want to make sure we get really authentic creatures. And we sort of describe the creature to him and what we want, and we showed him the concepts. And he goes into, we, we do sessions with him that are kind of hours in length, where we talk about how they would move, how they would eat, what the diameter of their their trunk would need to be or their or, or their abdomen if they're a herbivore versus a carnivore and how that would affect their spine and their movement so we kind of did this whole kind of thing he drew us lots of really great diagrams of um kind of musculature and and sort of how the bones would move and how the shoulder planes would all slide and things like that which was really great and then we sort of had to tackle the feet because we had to tackle the seed pod thing and we knew that we wanted to try and get a sense of them it feeling tactile so in the book they've kind of got these kind of spikes that they kind of just stick through the the seed pods whereas we wanted it to be something that you could like they would pick up and hold much like a human would and, it, and they would be able to kind of sense them so we ended up kind of coming up with sort of a symmetrical human hand where it's basically hasn't got a little finger but it's got two thumbs and they can kind of pinch and hold a hold, hold a spherical object and then at the same time, we sort of referenced kind of rhino's feet. So there was some kind of familiarity with them. Um, so, you know, in the end, I guess we, we we found a process and a way through for the visual. The really hard thing was when you read the books, time doesn't really matter. But what we have is our narrative is is quite linear in terms of, you know, what's happening in one world, you cut to the equivalent time in another world. And there is a sense of progression where everybody's stories are moving forward so that you can then do that kind of culmination point when everything collides and things overlap. Mary's stories just... It's on a different time frame, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, she sort of like goes through lots of worlds, ends up in this place, meets some animals, learns their language, or in the books teaches them our language, which we wanted to reverse. We wanted her to learn their language. She does all of that. Then there's all kind of other kind of sort of drama with the two Alapi, which we didn't do in the end, you know, and all of that eventually somehow is meant to coincide with a time frame of someone going from A to B. And we just realised it sort of, there was no way we, we, you know, we considered a whole episode just for Mary and the Malefa, but then you leave the other characters for too long and you lose momentum. So we tried lots of different things. And in the end, we sort of said, well, really, maybe the best thing we can do is try and just get the spirit of that story across. So that really what we do is we set up what's the most important importance about it, which is when the stories collide in episode eight and it it it, it helps sort of wrap everything up and, and 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 that. So I guess I mean if if Will has been looking for Lyra for months, then there's there's kind of a there's a time frame where it can happen, you know. So you've essentially done the I mean, very minor spoiler for Dunkirk, but you've kind of done the Dunkirk thing where you think things are happening at the same time and actually they're on a slightly different time frame. Exactly. And I think, and I, but we just, we just knew we couldn't do 
she's been there for years. We couldn't do like a gorillas in the mist, like Diane Fossey, you know, her whole story. So we um we sort of wanted it to feel I mean, fundamentally what we've done is we've kind of montaged our way through her process to get us to the real time point, which is when things collide and, and connect, and to allow us to then dip into that story in episode six in a real time way. We sort of so episode five we just sort of made into a timeless opening, like two montages within one within one thing where it goes from montage into narrative sequence, back into montage, back into narrative sequence. And we sort of felt that it worked and it didn't interrupt the flow. And we felt that it did a good job of getting the core principle of it, even if we don't do all of the stuff where they're like weaving baskets or whatever it was. I can't remember now. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was tricky. And scary, but at the same time, it actually wasn't the hardest thing on the show in the end anyway. Oh, good. So what was the hardest thing? Angels. Angels. Yeah, this is also on my list of questions, yeah. For me, for me, angels were very hard. I mean, the seventh episode is is just really difficult. Again, it, it, the thing about this show is that actually what trips you up is is just making sure that it it's covering all the things it needs to cover. It's exciting, but it's also covering kind of quite philosophical concepts at the same time. And then you, and you're trying to give people spectacle, but not disappear into spectacle at the sake of character. Like the stories aren't about. If if you read the book, everybody everybody always used to say to me about like, how are you going to do the big battle? And I read the book and I was like, the big battle is like a background sequence. It's not even the, the thing. So yeah, a lot of a lot of the things that were hard were actually trying to keep the characters in the in the center, give people enough of the spectacle that it didn't feel disappointing but there's only so much time in an episode to do what you need to do. So yeah, it, it, it was really decisions and omissions and like finding those levels, I think was really tricky for all of us. But yeah, and then the angels in particular, I just found hard because, you know, there was a world in which they were going to be CG all the time, which is obviously a massive investment, which would then take away, you know, like it's the sort of thing when you're doing a show like this and you're working out the budget, you're kind of like, we can do the angels CG all the time, but then we lose the harpies and a third of them are left and it's this sort of equation of like what you want to put on the screen. And then also we knew that, you know, those characters, like the way they're described in the book, where they're visible but not visible, but then actually what they're saying is really emotional. So you actually want to see them and see performances. So in the end, yeah, in the end, everybody decided that actually having physical actors so you could see their expressions, you could see their performances, but just sort of flavoring them with this sort of otherworldly kind of nature. But actually doing something that is a mix of a human that you filmed and a bunch of CG and especially ethereal CG is actually really tricky because you do a thousand versions and 999 of them look terrible and eventually you land on something and then and also it's sort of the easiest visual effects are the ones that are binary where you're kind of like that looks right we all agree that looks right let's move on whereas something like the angels you sort of get to the end of the time when basically you're going to deliver it and everyone's kind of like, yeah, I think we're good. And then you sort of deliver it. So, yeah, they're tricky. <laughs> I, th- I, I thought it was good. It, it, it looks like they're described in the book. They, they, you know, there and not there at the same time. You have that kind of in-between about them and very pretty. Yeah, well, that, was, that was the goal. But like I said, it's hard, to have, <laughs> it's hard to have confidence, especially when you're representing angels because you're trying to do something a bit different, but also something a bit familiar so that you're not throwing everyone out of it. And it was, it was just complicated. I like the six wings thing as well. I, I always think it's quite fun to get the six winged angels in there. The thing that's really funny about that is that the, thing, the problem with wings is that birds fly flat with their heads forwards. But when you want something to hover, you've got these wings that don't actually do that. And then we also didn't want them to look like they needed to really beat their wings to fly because you wanted them to have elegance. But then when we animated them without the wings being related to their movement, it again looked terrible. So again, an endless pit of pain, but it was fine. (laughs) Well, speaking of endless pits of pain, uh, that brings us on to the Harpies, uh, who uh, we were were talking to Stephen earlier in the week and... uh, he was he was saying harpies are expensive. Harpies are are demanding diva like creatures. Is this is this true? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, uh, from a visual effects perspective, anything that is yeah anything that's feathered is complicated. And then you know you just take a bird, so that's complicated. Then you just make it a massive bird that talks, and it gets harder. So so yeah. And also again, it's an equation between all the different things you've got to do with the budget that you have which isn't limitless. It's not a pocketless, you know, we're not a pocketless show where it's kind of like, that's the needs of the show. We'll just put the money in. Um, it's very much like, here's the box you're in. And it's a healthy box for television. It's just not 
comparable to the real big shows that exist now, you know, like Rings of Power, Game of Thrones, things like that. So, yeah, I don't want to say we're hard done by. It's not true. It's not true at all. But yeah, it's an equation. So with the harpies, again, you're trying to distill it down to the essence of what you want them to be. But I, I mean, our harpies were probably one of the things that I enjoyed the most, actually, because first of all, we knew we wanted to go away from the traditional kind of harpy is kind of like a shrieking half woman, half bird. Yeah, we sort of didn't want to do that it, it feels a bit sort of almost like reductive and we knew that my my big thing about it was i didn't want to have something with like a really articulate mouth that looked like a human i, I like the, my, my sort of pitch for them was that they should feel like they're talking from their throats and that talking is a painful thing because there's this idea that they're in there and like they're oppressing people by removing people's free will and they're sort of like basically they're sort of like trying to crush the ability for people to talk about their past and talk about their histories and, and they're trying to create division which i think is really interesting especially in our society now the idea that they're trying to make everybody be their own little isolated depressed island in the land of the dead and lyra's job is obviously to then bring everyone back together so i quite like the idea that like talking hurt so like we gave them this really pronounced neck that kind of vibrated and like actually like tensed when they spoke and then when we felt when we were looking for our voice actress we really had to find someone who could really talk in a pain, you know, like it was a painful, the ADR was painful, I think, as a process. And then I also really, really wanted to get us to a place where they're kind of scary, disgusting, but you feel sorry for them. Like you have a feeling of sympathy. Because I think that like, if you don't have, like, that's why Mrs. Coulter is such an amazing character is because you, you feel a range of things for her and it's a bit confusing. So that's why we ended up with Joel. Joel and his team did some really amazing designs. And then I sort of pushed the head slightly more sort of towards a turtle okay. because there's something sweet about a turtle. <laughs> but then we covered it in like horrible, flaky bits of disgusting skin and scabs. So it's sort of, it's like a turtle you don't want to touch, but you feel a bit sorry for it. And, that, and then that allowed, and, and then for the movement, because of the nature of that space, I really wanted, and this was a real, it was a bit of a gamble, which I think paid off is that we tried to hit some kind of strange balance where it had a slight touch of the Ray Harryhausens, like the kind of slightly twitchy, glitchy movement, but not so much that it then threw it out of realism. So yeah, we had a lot of fun playing with that. And I had a lot of fun doing the um, animation sessions with the team and sort of like acting out what I thought they should be like. And and they didn't, I mean, like the teams did an amazing job. They fell in love with that character and they really, really went for it and put the hours in. So yeah, I'm really proud of that. I mean, obviously, I'd love for there to be more of it. Sure. But spin-off show, just harpies. <laughs> spin-off show, just harpies. Family drama. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the uh, the promotional posters with those faces in, you know, glorious close-ups. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> otherwise, yeah, absolutely. Modern family, but just with harpies. That's what I would go for. <laughs> I mean, they, they, could, uh, they could be pitted against the show's other great looker, the Cliff Ghasts, who, uh, who oh, returned yeah, this episode as well. That's a dysfunctional, <laughs> that's a dysfunctional group. Yeah, the Cliff Ghasts was really fun. So, I mean, what was what was really interesting this season is that, for me, I got to direct quite a lot of different things across the season. So I, was, I, was, I ended up being the second unit director for every episode. So I did lots of, like, just nice, just even just straight narrative, non-visual effects stuff. I did lots of bits. And then the Mary's, the, the, like Mary's thread in episodes four, five, and six, I directed. And then in episode seven, I did all the action directing. And one of the things was doing the cliff gar sequence, which was for me really good fun. Like that was an yeah, it was a nightmare, and it sort of sort of you shouldn't, in theory, be able to get this done in one night. Sort of like on a raining, freezing winter night in in a in a quarry in Cardiff. But no, we got it done, and it was really really good fun. Like really exciting to do. So you know, that I mean, to be honest, that's been probably the biggest pleasure of the season outside of just loving doing creature work. Is you know getting to finish off some of the stuff. Like I shot I shot the stuff with um. Andrew Scott reuniting with Will. I shot Will reuniting with his mum. I shot James. I, I shot the sequence of James McAvoy against himself, and um, and then the Cliff Gast and the whole Spectre sequence as well. I, I got to do. Yeah, it's really good fun. I think you know that's probably. See, when you say Cliff Gast, and as, as soon as you say anything that I like, I'm like, yeah, we can talk about that because I'm really excited <laughs> about it. Well, I do, I do actually want to, to ask about a couple of those other uh, sessions as well. I mean, first of all, though, one night for that that whole sequence. That's that feels like pretty good going. The way a lot of those things work is we're trying to work out in that in that episode how you keep everyone active. And and you know, Will and Lyra's story there is you know the first part of it, actually in the book, when they come through and and we obviously do something different because we don't have the ghosts coming through and fighting the spectres. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But but in the end, their journey from when they cut through 
to getting to Azrael's camp can actually end up just being like two kids walking in the dark. So we were like, you know, how do we infuse this with bits of jeopardy and bits of, you know, and like we thought actually the cliff gas, they're a great little character. They kind of, they're kind of, you can do a really short sequence with them, but it can feel punchy. And we wanted, um, we wanted to give a Gunway a great hero moment as well. So, so yeah. So in the end it's, you know, for me, that's go out to a quarry with a gun, with a bunch of um, uh, production assistants and some Nerf guns. <laughs> Walk around and it's spend an afternoon just sort of working out roughly what you what we can do and creating a flow. When when you're a visual effects supervisor, you can really visualize what's not there quite easily, and you can really you can kind of craft stuff that is totally imagined. I think maybe I'm not saying I don't want to say it like easier than easier than directors that don't do visual effects, but I think you know there's a, there's an advantage to a certain type of work when you do that, and you can and you can see opportunity in a different way. So yeah, so in the end, we just like me and Adam Lyons, the DP, who's awesome. You know, we got there. It was deeply unpredictable. It was raining. It was so foggy that by the, when we started shooting, you couldn't see each other. And by the time we finished, you could see everything. And it was really hard to light. And it, everything was wet and rocky and slippy. And also they were shooting another unit at the same time. So we only had the cast for small sections. So they'd come over and I'd do like three or four shots. Then they'd go back over to the other units, do something else. Then they'd come back over, which is the nature of always filming on location is you're trying to get as much out of each space as possible. But yeah, no, I, I really enjoy the kind of, um, because of, because visual effects is such a slow process, like the immediacy of directing. Like, really appeals. I like making decisions and being like, that's what we did. <laughs> like a lump it. That's what we did. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, I mean, do you want to, just to be clear, do you want to direct, direct? Is that something that's on your sort of radar for the future? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, when I started out, I mean, I started out in a very different way when I started my career and actually directing was one of the things I started doing at the beginning. And um, and then I sort of just fell in love with visual effects and I fell in love with, and to be honest, I always just see any opportunity to do stuff related to story as like a privilege. And if you can get paid for it, it's amazing. And visual effects is such a great way of being involved in story if you find the right show and the right people to work with. And also, like a lot of the time, visual effects, when you're doing previs or you're building sequences and you're making whole chunks of movies that just are virtual, you are sort of end up sort of getting in a sort of directing place because you have to piece it together. And then, yeah, and then obviously you show it to a director and a director says yes or no. But in TV, that often doesn't happen because the directors have moved on. So yeah, I think you get quite a lot of practice, but yeah, it's definitely something that I'm 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 really really interested in. But it's um, I'm also not going to go back twenty years in my career and start you know uh, earning no money to uh, <laughs> you know just haven't got that luxury when you've got kids. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's all about building trust with people that process, and if people trust you enough to give you a shot, then um, then yeah, maybe maybe one day. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, you've you've taken some big shots with this story. Let's talk for a little minute about the specters and and moving away from the ghosts fighting them. Was that a sense of wanting to give the ghosts immediate peace, you know, rather than sort of sending them into a war immediately? Yeah, I think I think I think there's a number of things. Sometimes I think when you look back, it's hard to work out what the definite cause of something happening was. Like, you know, for example, there was a time when we prevised and worked out the entire bomb sequence being on a dam as it is in the book. Yeah, so we went through that whole process and I can't really remember how we went away from that. And the previous was great, but we went away from it and ended up somewhere else. And where we ended up, everybody um, was really happy with and seen, and, and it worked. So, And in the case of the Spectres, it, it is very much a strange part in the book where sort of tr- you sort of finish their story, but then there's like another bit of their story. But then the other bit of their story... You know, like like at, at its essence, it is about Lyra giving everyone peace and sort of like almost like re reconnecting the circle of life 
where it's been interrupted by kind of this 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 sort of horrific kind of purgatory. And, and, and it sort of creates different rules for people. It's sort of like when you step through the window, you dissolve into nature, apart from these guys who are going to go and have a fight. And it's sort of a bit strange. So I think like a kind of a combination of logic and like theme and sort of the immediate, and also like episode structure, like wanting to finish an episode with that feeling of, of conclusion. I think all of those things sort of happened. And then there's other things like, you know, you're talking about such different episodes in terms of shooting structure, schedule, that even combining them. If I actually imagine us actually having to transpose Limamel Miranda, Andrew Scott into shooting episode seven, like it would have been an absolute nightmare probably. So in, in hindsight, probably, you know, that it probably saved us a little bit as well. But I think I think most of it's a thematic thing and a feeling of like completion of a story. That was the sort of tidiest way of doing it. And also someone someone said the funniest thing to me on the when they were discussing Spectres versus Ghosts. And he said, um, he said, there's always a risk of it being like fart versus smoothie. <laughs> which I thought was the most amazing description of two ethereal sort of creatures <laughs> fighting. And I think, and, and yeah, and, and there was, and I think there is also, there is a, there is a, it's actually quite hard to do this, the ghosts coming through and then becoming an army that just doesn't feel like you're doing the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very similar and, 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 and sort of, and, and I sort of, so when I went, when, when it was one of the things I was a bit like, I don't know if I really want to like do that because I feel like it's been done really well in a scale that we probably can't, match because our ghosts aren't invisible ghosts they're people yeah so it won't feel like that and then you've got to get those people to fight specters so you know yeah lots of reasons i guess no, that's that's fair and, and and there is absolutely the risk of it looking a bit too you know harry potter dementors versus again human shaped ghosts in that as well so if, i feel like you are then tangling with the biggest budgets in fantasy immediately uh, exactly yeah 100 yeah 100 which is which is not easy to do we enjoyed bringing the spectres back in a way because like what you really want to do in that story, which again, finding the right thing was tricky is giving Mrs. Coulter agency in the things that happened before the cloud and mountains sort of finale. It's sort of strange that in the books, the spectres are on the bat on the side of evil when Mrs. Coulter's learned to control them in the, and it's, and there's something really satisfying about the idea of her sort of having, having a hero moment that isn't just related to Lyra. And having a, having something that can has an, have an impact on a larger scale. So I thought that yeah, I think that was really good fun actually when we were when we were kind of working it out. We basically had a board and we were like, what are we going to bring back for the battle? And it's sort of like, well, it's weird that the Magisterium come back because how do they know about it? Where do we, how do they get there? And you know, we've already worked out that airships are rubbish in a battle; they just blow up. So <laughs> you know, so when we did the list, we were like, well, if we bring the Spectres back, mm. what can we what can we do with them? With them? Yeah. yeah, and 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 having Mrs. Coulter have control agency show a larger scale of power show her kind of because because a lot of her story is about her like manipulation isn't it? Of, yeah rather than yeah she, she evolves so much in that story that it creates another kind of sort of like peak for her sort of development i guess so yeah yeah it was it was it was a, a kind of interesting way to pay off that fact that we'd you know we'd seen her control them we'd seen her kind of be able to tap into whatever darkness is in her own soul to be able to master them so to to then actually do something with that i thought was was rather clever i mean the, the, the whole sort of war scenes must have been pretty complicated then if you if you're if you're dealing with all of these things i, I love though that i mean it's a very s simple thing and, and maybe it took you months and months of thinking about it to decide to do it but color coding the angels was just as a viewer very very helpful i mean i, I to be honest right at the beginning i was like are we going to do like red red lightsaber versus <laughs> green lightsaber? Are we doing that just so it's clear? And everyone was like, "Yeah, we probably should." It was. It didn't take ages. It, working out the colours took a bit of time, <laughs> but but no, it felt like you. It, it was required, you know. To do. And that sequence again, it's like that sequence was it was was tough. I mean, it's fundamentally an all CG sequence. But there's nothing apart from the occasional bit of James McAvoy's face. There's nothing real in any of it, really. It's a, it's completely sort of fabricated, which is, which is us pushing ourselves, you know, budgetarily right to the edge of what we can do and probably too far. But we had such an amazing team. Our team in Montreal did that. And Damien, who was our supervisor, he, he, he really like, committed like himself to that sort of, you know, he gave something of himself that he may never get back. Yeah. I thought they did a really, really beautiful job. And, you know, we wanted to do, we wanted to really basically go full fantasy for those sequences live in a kind of strange otherworldly light 
and and yeah, and we watched a lot. Yeah, we spent a lot of time watching time lapse storm videos to find the moments in nature where suddenly a storm looks a bit like a weird other otherworldly creature or thing or or spaceship. And we were like, that's the one. And we found those bits and made a cloud out of like twelve different bits of time lapse. And then they turned that into a fully CGI sort of simulated thing with a full CGI landscape and the whole camp CG and it's sort of about as far down the CGI route as our show's ever gone, I think. So It, it looked amazing. I, you know, it reminded me of that um, f- those fantastic opening shots in Independence Day where the aliens are arriving in those giant clouds and you don't know what's coming. It's just like something profoundly unnatural is in the sky above you. You know, I had that kind of feel about it. And it was fun, like, playing with the palette of natural things like lightning and using lightning as the classic kind of horror movie reveal, but we're not revealing a face, we're revealing a massive building inside a cloud. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. And, and actually working out the rhythm and the timing of that is really specific. Like, when those bits happen, you can really mess it up and break the rhythm if you do them too often, too too infrequently or whatever. So, yeah, it was fun. And, you know, and getting to do a little bit of sort of intention craft spaceshipy stuff was was kind of fun to pay that off as a craft. And um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it was a cool looking craft as well. It looked that kind of it had that sort of steampunky kind of historic materials look to it, but but a bit pushed forward than, than anything we'd seen before. Yeah, appropriately. I think, I mean, again, Joel, that's all Joel. You know, he, he made an actual full size physical one as well as us making a fully virtual one. It was really heavy, actually. <laughs> When we, had to, when we had to move it around, it was really heavy. It was um, it was a great bit of bit of work though, and yeah, I mean it was fun. I mean the other thing about that is, you know, again with my job, you know, I'm always really interested and keen to sort of give anything character. So in the book, the way it's described as being something that you control with your mind. As soon as Joel decided designed something with legs, I was like, oh great, I can kind of put like indecision and like I can almost like play with squash and stretch animation like you get in traditional animation, like as it pushes it kind of the legs extend and you can kind of give it a character and personality, which is nice. So I was sort of happy he gave it all the legs in the end. <laughs> yeah, they, they they did have that sort of, almost made it feel um almost made it feel alive or something. It was cool. But tell me as well about the Kingdom of Heaven. So obviously the, the intention craft ultimately meets its end, crashing into and just vanishes. Fine. And the Kingdom of Heaven, I thought, was a fascinating design because on one hand, it has that cold, white, glowing kind of thing that we maybe associate with, you know, everything going back to Powell and Pressburger. But equally, those columns that are just crawling dust, I guess. I mean, it's ve- it makes sense, but it's very unsettling. It's a deeply unsettling place. It's very hard to do, actually. I'm not going to lie. We spent a lot of time trying to find something that actually fundamentally just worked with the actors and the color palette of the actors and the tone so that it felt, like you said, unsettling, alive, but still cathedral-esque and strong. And that was something that Joel Collins was really sort of adamant about. Like, you know, he wanted like, Joel's, Joel's a really funny character because you'll say to him, should Metatron have a chair? And he goes, why would he have a chair? <laughs> Fair. Yeah. And then you'd be like, and, and, and with the columns, we'd be like, should we push some details on him? And he'd be like, what do you want, George and Edwardian? Why would he have either? <laughs> you know? And it's sort of like, and, 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 and the thing is, you throw those questions out. He's like, it's a, it's a liminal, ethereal space. All he's doing is showing off. Why would he show off in any era or period? It's about scale, magnitude, and to a degree, kind of bureaucracy. So yeah, in the end... Even even down to adding the particles was a discussion. Because he was like, do we want that much detail? Do we not want that? And I was like, I need the detail because it helps it come to life. And it gives me something to play with when things are out of focus. And, but that was, that was, again, really, really challenging. I mean, any time that you've got two people standing and everything else is green, it's really, really sort of uncomfortable territory. But the, um, the, the stuff we did with Stel Maria, like in that, when she runs in, that stuff, I'm, like those animation shots, I'm so like, they'll be on showreels for years to come. Well, I, I did want to ask about the demons because it feels like, um, obviously you've, you've been dealing with them since season one, but it feels like we have certain moments like that, like Sel Maria's arrival, like Pan being left on the dock, that are so pivotal this season. They are so close up, detailed, filled with emotion. You know, again, that must have been something that you, did, you even having done them for two seasons now, you had to spend a, quite a bit of time on, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, the demands of this season aren't just that things get bigger, it's that actually the meaning gets deeper. So, you know, the pan on the jetty sequence is really, really good example in that it's long, you know, it's true performance, it's got to feel connected, and 
if you don't get the tone right, you ruin one of the most pivotal parts of the of the the books, and it's fifty percent CG with a talking ferret, basically not fair, blind Martin. So decision which creature you make it. You know, that, that, you know, in the book, there's a bunch of things. Like in the book, Lyra's actually still younger than Daphne is in the show, and it's and 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 the whole sequence feels is much more in in the in the book. They're kind of slightly more on the same page. They both think that they should go to see Roger, but they know they can't, and it's just kind of like it's gut wrenching in a slightly different way because they're they're sort of sad that they have to do it. Now we've read the Secret Commonwealth, and we know that the way that it goes is they become more fractured. And I think, I mean, I'm sort of slightly speaking for writers here, but I think it for them probably felt more right that there was more of a disconnect between their, them, especially with Daphne being a bit older. And, and, and you know, there was a version where we would have had Pan and Daphne like cuddling and hugging and all of this sort of stuff. And to be honest, we, di- we didn't really put our, a budget limit on that sequence because it was so important. But as soon as you start getting into that stuff, you're basically creating a level of complexity that removes the ability to feel totally natural for the actor because you're suddenly going and going oh no you're not holding it right do that one again and we knew that with those sequences you want them to be two takes really per shot get the essence of it get exactly the raw emotion and just move on and have confidence in the performance and you know that's and 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 actually for the voice of pan we very rarely have in fact i don't think we've ever had kit amazing and in heartstopper and all that stuff um, I'm so happy that he's doing so well. He's he's never really there. We 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 stand in the voices and he comes in and, and and does it afterwards. But with that sequence, we brought him up to Cardiff and he did that whole sequence with Daphne because we knew it was that important. And, and then actually, the thing that was really interesting about it again, all it did was like sort of double down on the way that I I view animation. And I mean, I'm very blessed. Like we've got like an amazing animation supervisor in every office. On, on our project and they're brilliant and they and a lot of the performance you know again for my job is to make sure it feels right and it, the energy's right but then like every nuanced detail like i love to be surprised by the performances they give back um the animators do and, they're, they're, and they're, they know the characters so well that they do such an amazing job so for me i always break the animation down into just like head acting body acting and face acting and I think that you should be able to do, for me, I think you should be able to do 90% of performance with body language. Then then where the head looks and what the head does is like, and, and then really actually the face would just be a tiny little bit with animals anyway. So to me, I spent all of my time kind of doing squint tests when I watch it and kind of going like, if I squint a little bit, do I get a, the feeling of what Pan's feeling? And then and then the animators do all the other magic that makes them really good. So so yeah, so I guess to answer your question in a very long-winded way, yes, we had to go quite a lot deeper. We had to do a lot more depth with Stel Maria, which was really good fun. And that challenge is what makes the show great. Yeah, absolutely. And and then in comparison to that, how about that final sort of match shot, the the final goodbye for for Will and Lyra? I was about to say Will and Daphne, and I'm like, nope, <laughs> Will and Lyra. Actually, it was really funny on the um, on, on on TV that Daphne was being interviewed and she kept being called Lyra. Okay, not just me. Excellent. I not just you, don't worry. <laughs> The the concoction of that end sequence is kind of a long shot montage where you just see them kind of their lives sort of overlapping. That was a that was a combination of um our the director and DP of that and 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 this idea of keeping it that simple, um I thought was really beautiful. And what was great about that is that we didn't really define when shooting what the demons were doing at all. We just let the kids do their thing. I, I can't call them kids anymore. Daphne and Will do their thing. And then what was lovely is see that come together in the edit. And then I just got this like opportunity with our animators again, just to kind of have a play and just go, what's the right level of, like, we don't want to distract from Will and Lyra. Um, We don't want to ruin what they're doing, but we also want to make it that when you watch it like a second time or your eyes drift to them, you realize that there's some kind of building connectivity happening. Yeah, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. So yeah, it's really good to do. I've always been fascinated. This is more a question for the books, uh, perhaps, than than for you, at least unless there's sequels and stuff down the line. But um, can people in our world see Will walking around with a cat all the time? I mean, he becomes a surgeon. I think in theory, yes. I think in theory, yes. I think he's just a mad cat dude. I think that's his <laughs> destiny. I really like the idea of, like, I always thought it would be really funny when we were filming the sequence with, um, with uh, Amir reuniting with his mum at the end where you know like there's that kind of quite heartbreaking montage that actually was the the editor's decision and she you know so what happened was we we shot everything with um daphne returning to oxford and then in the cut in the cutting room the editor was just like we should just 
do keep doing split shots where we're cutting to an equivalent shot of Will, and then it will really heighten the fact that Will's going back to his family and everything's great, and Daphne is just on her own still, you know. Um, and I thought it was a really great construction. So actually, when I directed that sequence, she, the editor, she she gave me a storyboard and I just shot it because it was a really good idea. It was a great idea, and I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to do exactly that. But I always thought it'd be really funny if right at the end of that sequence, Will's mum just looks over at this kind of cat that's smiling at him and is just like. And then just to like sort of leave that scene with her confused. <laughs> but that would have been a nice Easter egg ending. Um, yeah, I think he is just a mad cat guy. Mad cat forever. Guy. Well, there we go then. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, if if they if they ever come back for the secret Commonwealth, will you be will you be rushing to sign up? Yeah, totally. I, I would like that. That it's it's one like if someone said to me today, lit, you can look at any visual effects show on TV. Doesn't matter if you've got the money to do it or it's going to be a nightmare. What's the type of work you want to do? I picked up materials every time. Fingers crossed. We'll hopefully uh, see you in a few years. Uh, ready for that then? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> what did you think of the of the whole of Mary's story itself? About you know, sort of it's almost kind of Proustian, but instead of a Madeleine, she has a little almond bun, you know, and that sort of sends her on this whole journey into what the heck is life all about, really, when you think about it. I liked this. I, I, I couldn't remember. Is this? I don't think this level of detail is in the book, is it? As Francesca brought no, this. No, I think the, I think the detail was. Added, yeah, yeah, I I I really I really liked this. It was beautifully told. I thought the the writing here by Francesca Gardner was particularly good. Um, the the dialogue was was really lovely. You know, she said, "Oh, what was it? I couldn't bear I couldn't bear living without feeling that alive. That self realization that it doesn't matter if there's a higher power that life is short that you know you have to do the most with the time that you were given and you as an individual are empowered to you know find your own happiness i think that's that's a nice that's a nice message and i thought it was and there's also sort of heartbreak in between the lines there in her story and in later when she speaks to will you know she says something to him like you know it it, it gets easier you know, so living with with the that heartbreak. So again, it's you know, it's experience, and that's something she's sharing with them, and it's important. And what about the relationship with the demons? Because I thought that was really fascinating. Some of this is is kind of drawn from uh, from the Book of Dust, and is kind of drawn from the Secret Commonwealth. And knowing that in that time, years later, and I, I don't think this is a spoiler to say. But Pan and Lyra have some issues between them because he still feels this abandonment and he still feels like she turned away from him at a certain point. Well, she did. She literally got on a boat and left him at the dock. <laughs> yeah, quite literally, yeah. I think they've pulled some of that forward in a way that the book didn't quite do. They didn't quite have this kind of almost accusation from the demons that you left us behind, you abandoned us, we have been looking for you and you're just you know, here going swimming. And so I thought that was a really <laughs> interesting thing to bring up. Yeah, he's he's hurt, isn't he? There was a, even even on the dock, there was a sort of an, an, an accusatory vibe towards Will. And I think like you said, yeah, it's just like, you know, he's he's come along, you're choosing, or you're choosing Roger, or you're choosing Will. It's like, what, what about me? I like, yeah, I do like that they've acknowledged that, that they haven't just made it a quick, happy reunion because Pan, in a way, is his own, individual he is a part of lyra but he is kind of separate and i and i like and there's something you know we we speak about the head and the heart in real life and there's something to be said for that we're all we're often in dialogue with ourselves aren't we you, you think um oh, i really want to do this but is it that logically the right thing to do or whatever you know the, so I, I i like that they've expressed that and and being not at one or in harmony with yourself is something that is very common, I think, in real life. Mm, that's very true, yeah. And so in that case, uh, Serafina and her her demon are kind of marriage counsellors a little bit. <laughs> <It's> when, <laughs> yeah. they, when they find the demons and they and she said, you know, she recognises that they're basically punishing Will and Lyra and she says, essentially, you know, go home because they're going to need you. They, they're going to need you for everything that's to come. And she clearly already knows that, well, she must know at least that you can't live in another world permanently, right? So she must know that they're always going to be torn between two places. Best, best case scenario, even with doors open, they're going to be so It's a long-term relationship, two. yeah. Yeah, it's going yeah, to be yeah. like, you know, a month in Europe, I'll come see you next month kind of thing. 
But I think I do. You know, I think she probably senses that there's maybe more to it than that, and she's certainly right at the end of the day. But I, I did like the the scene between Lyra and Pam when they do meet up again. That, he, that he's like, "You left me. I've had to travel so far to find you again." And she keeps saying, "You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so grateful. I didn't want to. I'm so sorry. Please." And it's it's not. She's not explaining to him. She's not, you know, going on at length to justify to him what she did. She's just, she's just apologizing and asking for forgiveness, really. You know, and I, I thought that was interesting. Like he does know on some level why she did what she did. You know how important it was to her. He's just angry anyway. And I think I think that was a that was a nicely turned scene as a result. Yeah, it was interesting, and we it was, we didn't see the same reaction from uh, Kiryava Will's demon she seemed to be a bit more understanding or perhaps or wasn't or just wasn't expressing it in that moment but she just kind of just goes to him and they're kind of like hey we cool yeah cool bro <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, interesting that they petted one another's demons a big no-no for the church. yeah nice touch or, yeah, yeah nice yeah. touch literally uh, yeah. i did <laughs> i did have a lot of questions about Will's later life. So I, I believe it's canon that he becomes a surgeon. Yes. Where does the cat sit while he's doing surgery? Can other people <laughs> see the cats? Can other people see the yes. cats? Yes. These are the kind of questions that people come to this podcast for. Huh? <laughs> oh my God, that's great. I'll, I'll answer it in a second. But I, I I, did have the same thought around this whole idea of Will's and, and Mary's demons manifesting. It feels like a bad deal. As much as I'd love to meet my little spirit animal, I'm like... There's there's practicalities. It's a lot more cumbersome to go around with a bloody animal everywhere. But so it, yeah, what's he doing in when he's in surgery? Yeah, certainly not the most hygienic thing. Maybe poor Kiryava has to like uh, sit outside on the on a on a wall like that's yeah. close by or something. I don't know. Or maybe maybe in a cage. Either way, it seems like a bad idea. I mean, aren't there people with cat allergies in the hospital? Do you know what I mean? I just feel like there's <laughs> there's a lot of questions to be answered. And, you know, I have I have yeah I have notes on that. But but he'd become it would be an eccentric sort of thing for him. To, he'd, be, he'd be like the cat doctor, right? It would be incentive to become a really kick-ass surgeon, so that no one would argue if he says, "Oh, and by the way, I have to have my cat in the next room." Yeah, exactly. You know? Oh God damn it! He's the best. I'm not doing, <laughs> not doing that with my cat. <laughs> Amazing. So we see the um, the bench, which I have literally made the pilgrimage to as a fan. You can go to that spot in the Oxford Botanical Gardens, just opposite Magdalen College. And is that the bench that they shot at? Is that the actual bench? It know? looked awfully similar to me. Yeah. So, um, so if it wasn't, they, it the very least. yeah, if it wasn't, yeah. they've replicated it really, really well. Um, I think they, they, you know, as as you heard in uh, in Joel and I think Russell's interviews, but you have a little bit of you know redressing of the sets just to give you that nice, neat um, divide between the two. So visually, it looks like two worlds meeting in the middle or touching, and the the big questions of where to put the demons in comparison to each other and and how to pose um, Will and Lyra themselves. But it, it's just kind of heartbreaking it's just <laughs> it really is um midsummer's day at midday every year just a kicker and it's a it's a i really liked the montage that they did showing them sort of uh, uh year after year and that split screen it's a it's a it was a, it's a beautiful visual representation of that idea it was and it's it's nice i think that will goes back with his demon first of all but also with to his mum and also with Mary Malone, that he has a bit more of a structure that he didn't before. Because I think Will Will was always more isolated and more maybe in need of help than I think Lyra was. And I think it's, you know, it's it's good and it's nice that he has that presumably going forward. She, you know, certainly in the book and, and we don't really see it here, but she goes back and, you know, goes to the Master of Jordan College and essentially tells him what happened so she does have her own support structure but i think will was the one who was much more in need of finally being supported and not always being the support you know so i i really liked that yeah nicely nicely said I, although i would i would have liked a bit of clark peters to close us out me too uh, bit of, bit i was hoping for that scene yeah. yeah but i i'm confused as to is will not suspected for for murder or is he wanted in association with a with a death in his house or how has that panned out? I guess not. I guess given that he's been away 
And look, the guy did fall downstairs. He tripped over a cat and fell downstairs, you know. So I think the, the police probably decided that was all there was yeah, to it. Let's just, just assume everything's, everything's fine. Um, yeah. uh, unless like 20 years from now, some some hotshot detective starts looking into the cat, <laughs> the cat doctor. Oh no, not the <laughs> cat doctor. A lot of people dying of cat allergies at this, uh, <laughs> this hospital. They could even have pinned it on Lord Boreal, who disappeared around the same time and was a known associate of the deceased, presumably. That's true. I like that. So. And by the way, I'm not implying that the show should have done any of this work. No, I mean, very much. Just, we do no, not. That, that would have brought everything to a halt. Nobody wants a courtroom scene in the last episode with Will <laughs> yeah. fighting for his freedom. I would have maybe liked it as one as one line after that, you know, yeah. the, the closing. Like Lyra went on to have lots of adventures and Will was cleared of all charges. <laughs> you know in terms of that kind of final I love the montage the montage just reduced me to floods of tears but and, and seeing them you know grow a little and develop a little and change over time and still retain their essential Lyra and Willness I thought that was great I don't think I needed the text yeah yeah fair fair it does feel uh, potentially a little bit ham, ham-fisted or um, less subtle, right? It would have been just nice to have a fade to black. Exactly. I mean, it's the subtle knife, people. Come on. You know, I, I don't think <laughs> yeah. it works when it's a story based on a true story and you want to know what happened to that person in real life. I, I don't think it very often works in fiction because I think it feels offhand and unnecessary. So I would have personally lost that. I'm sure there's a very good reason for it. And I'm sure that maybe there are hardcore fans out there who were like, oh my God, that was my favorite bit. I I don't know who these people are, but I wish them well. <laughs> it, felt, it felt like a little bit like they wanted to keep the door open as well for for more Lyra. And, may, and maybe well, that maybe that was the rationale behind it. It was- I uh, think they do. I think I think- I think from, well, you heard um, Jane earlier in the series, but I think they would be very open to a secret Commonwealth adaptation in a few more years. I think that would uh, not go amiss. Uh, They're great books as well. You could absolutely do something with those. Um, So maybe we'll see the Book of Dust one day. You never know. That's all good and well, but like, what about Will the Cat Doctor? Right, that's the real show we need. We haven't read the final the final uh, book yet, right? So there's there's (laughs) fingers crossed for Will the Cat Doctor to turn up in whatever the Book of Dust book three is. It's just it's just it's just like a TV serial, like Case of the Week, like it's just different (laughs) medical emergencies (laughs) while there's a cat in the room. What if the cat's the real doctor and it's a sort of ratatouille (laughs) raccoony thing where he basically sits on Will's head and pulls his hair? Oh my god, even better. <laughs> I think we may have gone off a little gone off off piece a little bit at this point. Come on, I think we're just wolf. we're just trying to avoid, you know, dealing with the fact that we were absolutely devastated by the end of the show and um and it's very very hard to talk about it seriously without bursting into tears again because you know, these two people who've just found true love with one another have now pledged never to see each other again for the rest of their lives to save the universe. I mean, it's a lot to deal with. It's it's so it's more tragic by yeah by the fact that they, they've kind of just kind of just just I revealed know. their feelings yeah. for each other and it's like it's it's so it is one of the most heartbreaking endings to any piece of uh, literature or TV I think so look I think uh, look well done I think again they've adapted it really well really enjoyed watching this whole series really enjoyed chatting mm. about it uh, with you Helen thanks very much me too yeah it's been and thanks to all our guests as well because it has been such a pleasure hearing it from the horses mouths um which is not to suggest that they're demons shaped like horses but just that they <laughs> they know what they're talking about unlike us but it's been it's been absolutely fabulous going deep on this show because it is a show in a series of books that have so many layers like Mrs Coulter they have so many layers and so much to talk about and um yeah Fantastic. I, I hope they do do the Book of Dust just so we can be back here in a couple more years talking about demons again. Watch this space. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Helen, where, uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find uh, more of your work? Oh, yes. Well, I'm on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara. Um, you can often find me also on the Empire podcast weekly or around Christmas season on the Bah Humbug podcast. And I have a book called Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film that is available in all good and evil bookshops. Uh, and it is an excellent book. Uh, I have read it. We have it. And I've been on the Bar Humbug podcast. So if you want to hear me and Helen and uh, my wife, Kathy talking about the Lindsay Lohan Christmas film, you can go do that. And who wouldn't? And exactly. I've forgotten what it was called. Falling for Christmas, that was it. Falling for um, Christmas. 
And uh, I also have a podcast with my wife, Kathy, called The Cinemile, where we watch from the movies. Thank you, Helen. Helen's been on there back when we lived in the same country. But it's even better when I'm not on it. So there you go. <laughs> Stop. Um, and also, I uh, host a podcast about The Wire. So if you if you are into another HBO show called The Wire, um, then we are recapping every episode of that, like this show with the cast and crew, uh, with my co-host Kobe Amanaka. So that's at The Wire Stripped or at The Cinemile on all those places. All righty. So I think that's a wrap. Three seasons are up. And fingers crossed, we'll see you again for the Book of Dust. Thanks, Helen. Stay dusty. (laughs) His Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 